Good evening to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hard to believe tomorrow is Friday, and it's also hard to believe that we are close to wrapping up the final week of August. Now, I know for some of you, depending on where you are in the world, it could already be uh, Friday, and it, meaning that it could also be daytime where you all live. But where I'm living, or where I reside, I should say, it is nighttime, but I'm glad to be back on the air, but then again, I don't ever recall a time when I wasn't glad to be back on the air. But here we are discussing, uh, once again, the War of 1812 in Wisconsin, the Battle for Prairie du Chien by Mary Elise Antoine. You know, all of us um, are put on this uh, planet for uh, various reasons, and we certainly all would hope that it's for all the right reasons, but you know, all of us um, are born with unique talents, and it's up to us as to how we go about using those uh, talents. You know, it's one thing to um, work, and it's one thing to be good at your work, but at the same time, work, it's, there, there's more to life than just work. Work itself can also mean finding your life's work, but work itself doesn't have to revolve around life's work alone. Having uh, talents, or rather hobbies, I should say, like mine, for example, uh, one of those hobbies is to uh, podcast, which I've been doing since June of last year, has been a great example of um, life's work. Now, I didn't come up with this phrase. Um, a famous um, pro football uh, coach came up with this uh, phrase, and one of his uh, players, whom went on to become a um, NFL head coach and also became a um, Hall of Fame inductee, the coach was uh, Paul Brown, whom um, coached the Cleveland Browns for a number of years, and then would go on to be the um, first head coach of the uh, Cincinnati Bengals in the late 60s. How ironic that the Cleveland Browns they're named after their coach, Paul Brown, and the Cincinnati Bengals football stadium is Paul Brown Stadium. I tell you, uh, the city of the state of Ohio certainly has uh, a lot of uh, love uh, for both um, franchises, given the fact that the uh, strong connection with Paul Brown. But Paul Brown had a saying: whenever um, a player's uh, career was coming to a close, that is, his football career was, it was time to get on with life's work. In other words, you can't play football forever, you can't play any sport forever, but when you know your time is up in playing this sport, you've got to figure out where you want to go next with your life, and that means finding your life's work. Hey, I'm, I'm not a professional uh, sports player, but when I uh, switched careers uh, 14, 15 years ago, I knew I had to get on with life's work. In other words, I had to find out where it was I really needed to be. And I've been with the same uh, company now for 14 years, and I wouldn't trade uh, anything in the world uh, for being uh, with a great uh, company that I've been working for all these years, um, in 14 years being with the, in uh, transportation. Um, but I have found my life's work, not just in the line of work itself, but I have uh, found my life's work doing other um fun um, adventures, whether it's uh, traveling, wine tasting, not just reading, 
and not just reading history, but sharing my uh, passion of history with all of you, my uh, fellow uh, 101 podcast listeners. The uh, player whom Paul Brown coached, whom really benefited greatly from the uh, phrase um, life's work, was uh, Steelers head coach Chuck Knoll, who um, came to Pittsburgh in 1969. He had uh, been uh, an assistant to Don Shula with the Baltimore Colts, a.k.a. now the Indianapolis Colts. But Chuck Knoll uh, took over a franchise that had never won a playoff game. Uh, they had had a long, long streak of losing. And Chuck Knoll really was the savior of the franchise. If it, I mean, I'm a huge Steelers fan. My wife and I are. But had it not been for Chuck Knoll, I don't believe the Pittsburgh Steelers would have achieved uh, the success that they um, achieved by becoming the team of the 1970s. But what Chuck Knoll told his players as as their time came along was that, hey, you're not going to be able to play football forever. Football is something of a uh, temporary fix in your life. In other words, you, it's something that, yes, you can look back on and, and relish and savor, knowing that um, Noel drafted, um, well, I could say, for example, he drafted helped draft nine players from 69 to 74 who went on to be have uh, pro football hall get enshrined in the pro football hall of fame but for those men they for as much success as they achieved on the field their successes off the field have even been bigger so the bottom line is is that um, your successes can't be confined to just one area of life they should be confined to multiple uh, realms of your life and that includes uh, finding your life's work but expanding upon life's work as in general so that's really uh, what my philosophy has been really more so in the last year with podcasting is expanding upon my life's work. And thanks to the successes I've attained, um, you all have uh, helped uh, help me get to where I'm at in large part with, 38, uh, with followers in 38 nations around the world, including the United States. Um, the sky's the limit. So for you all who have been listening all this time, you all have probably found your life's work as well by uh, learning as much about history that you didn't know beforehand and now being able to pass that along to other people who are now um, catching on to the podcasts that I've uh, been presenting. Well, I know I could probably talk more about that, but I feel like my focus should be more so about what we're uh, going to be discussing in this segment of the War of 1812 in Wisconsin for the Battle for Prairie du Chien. We're going to talk about the period from uh, 1783 to about um, 1802. So we're, we're going to cover a 20-year span, but trust me on this, folks, it's not going to take an eternity. I was able to uh, pinpoint down what is what was essential, and well, yes, I thought the information was essential, but basically holding off. So we do have a good amount of information to cover, but we will be able to get it all done. So let's fasten our seatbelts and get ready for another adventure. Prior to 1783, okay, we all know what's important about 1783, the American Revolutionary War is officially coming to an end by means of the Treaty of Paris. So prior to 1783, however, prior to 1783, Treaty of Paris taking place, 
Indian civilizations, or rather I should say confederations from New York, when I think of Indian civilizations or confederations in New York, I think of the League of the Iroquois, to all the way to the Mississippi River are um, expressing a lot of concerns, worries, uh, fears. They're, they have a lot of unknown um, in, their, um, in their minds. They don't know what's going to happen to them because so many of them sided with the British. And at the same time, there were those who sided with the um, Americans but the majority of them had sided with the British. But then again, many Indian tribes living along the western frontiers, or the western frontier rather, are also very concerned. So did many of these um, Indian civilizations or confederations express concerns about what their futures held in the aftermath leading up to 1783 when the Revolutionary War officially ends uh, with the signing of the Treaty of Paris? The answer is yes. Well, for starters, um, many, if not all, tribes feared that their relationship with Britain would get dismantled. In other words, it would come apart and never get repaired. Secondly, these Indian civilizations feared, and feared that an American uprising could happen as a means for getting payback against all Indian nations whom sided with Britain during the Revolutionary War. So in other words, the Indians are very fearful that perhaps maybe a civil war could emerge or another global conflict on American soil where you've got the British controlling all the land west of the Appalachian Mountains, but at the same time you still have uh, French-speaking peoples living in what we now know as um, Kaskaskia, Cahokia, um, Illinois. And then um, you've got French people whom, are, um, whom have assisted the British in, um, in going about establishing effective uh, trading relations with, uh, with the uh, Indians along the upper Mississippi. So this still is a time of uncertainty even as the Revolutionary War officially comes to a close. But after the war itself ends, Canadian-British officials and figures, or rather, Canadian-British officials and figures, go about an, um, a very, very uh, essential ambition, or rather, I should say, they go about um, an essential mission to um, keep the unknown from um, becoming worse to the point where to where everything they've worked for falls apart. What do you think Canadian British officials and figures go about doing? Well, they go about preserving friendship and trading practices with all Indian nations residing in the Northwest Territory. Okay, I'm going to say it again. I know I've said it before, the Northwest Territory folks. That's present-day Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Illinois, Wisconsin. That's a lot of Indians, not just Indians, but Indian tribes living in that territory. And I have no doubts that many of you are wondering exactly just how many in the thousands are living in the Northwest Territory. Because we're not, I mean, there's no way that it can only be a few hundred Indians. It has to be well into the thousands. But I'll get to that number figure here soon. 
Although Britain did sign the 1783 Treaty of Paris, they still retained their military posts, such posts as from Lake Champlain in, Os in Oswego, New York, including Niagara, Detroit, and Michilimackinac. Niagara, a.k.a. Fort Niagara, just not far from what we know as Niagara Falls, uh, Lake Champlain, um, for those of you who don't know where Lake Champlain is in New York State, that's uh, just north of Lake Placid, not far from, um, the lake itself is uh, on, there's the New York side to the lake as well as um, the Vermont side. Um, on the New York side, there's um, Plattsburgh and Champlain, New York. Not far from Canada. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Champlain's not too far from uh, Montreal, Quebec. And then Oswego is uh, north of Syracuse, in case any of you all didn't know where Oswego was. It's uh, not, it's pretty much uh, is on, is right near Lake Ontario, and it's often referred to as a, as a rust belt area for snow because Os Oswego is known for getting uh, pounded with snow. How did agents and troops uh, within British within the British Indian Department, go about improving existing differences amongst American Indian tribes from the upper Mississippi to Lake Superior. Well, you know, we should keep in mind that, yes, the British have a huge territory west of the Appalachians, but it doesn't mean that even all the Indians are on the same page, that is, all Indian civilizations. And, of course, the British are also worried about um, about their livelihood, too, because they know that the Americans are, are just itching to now go west of the Appalachians and start establishing new settlements. So, for the British, it's not so much about protecting their own interests. They've got to do whatever they can to help protect the Indians, uh, the Indian uh, tribes whom they... Um, have established alliances with. So how do they go about improving the existing differences among amongst the Indian nations along the Great Lakes to the upper Mississippi? They, For one, they met directly with tribal leaders at Prairie du Chin and Labaye, including villages midway, or rather I should say at halfway points, to holding a peace meeting Come July 1787, two months after delegates first convened in Philadelphia to uh, begin um, creating a new um, government that is still in um, operation nearly um, close to 234 years later. But come July 1787, British leaders would go about pledging their full support in protecting Indian nations from American attacks. So this is, um, this is crucial that uh, British um, agents and troops within, the, uh, within their Indian department, they uh, not only met with tribal leaders at Prairie du Chen and Labaye, but they also went to other halfway uh, meeting places where Indian tribes did not live in one or both of those places, meaning Labaye and Prairie du Chen, to, um, you know, to pretty much say to those tribes that, hey, look, regardless of where you're located at, we've got your backs. We've got the alliances established. 
And no matter how hard the Americans try to come westward, they may try to establish a settlement or two, but they'll never be able to, to match us because they're coming into unknown charted territory. Think about it. The Americans, yes, they'll come west, but they really don't know exactly where they might be going to that will assure them uh, safety. Let me put it to you this way, folks. It's, you know, sometimes it's easy to think that uh, people going westward, even in the late 18th century, we tend to think, oh, that must have been such a peaceful journey, or it must have been a peaceful way to go about establishing a new life. No. And in other words, folks, this isn't Little House on the Prairie. In other words, it's not Laura Ingalls Wilder's, Laura Ingalls Wilder, um, her book, uh, Little House on the Prairie. Um, it, it's nothing like that. Uh, frontier life, yes, we'd like to believe was, uh, was innocent and all that, but frontier life was very difficult. And people moving westward will soon find that um, to be the reality, um, especially as the United States will grow and especially as the United States will go about um, establishing its own policies. So as the Revolutionary War ends, the United States goes about doing away with the Continental Army. Why would they want to go about doing away with the Continental Army? Well, you know, hey, you've defeated the mightiest empire in the world. Why do you think there would ever need to be another war that would take place? We've, we've done our part to achieve the improbable. And yes, that's all great. This is going to be an issue that will uh, continue to be a hotbed for, top, for uh, debate in terms of uh, the presence of standing armies, even in times of peace. Because we now believe that we have achieved peace especially knowing that the Revolutionary War has come to an end. So by doing away with the Continental Army, the states have now turned to militias for maintaining defenses along the frontier territories. You know, even George Washington himself, it, there were things that he liked about the militia, but at the same time there were things that he detested about the militia. One in particular was that militiamen had this notion that they could just come and go as they wished and would only stay for a short period of time, like three to six months, and once that was done with, that was it. Um, not to get off track, but I'll just sum it up here. After the um, victories at uh, Trenton and Princeton, Trenton, December 1776, uh, Christmas night, that is, Princeton, New Jersey, the start of January 1777, after those two big big victories, Washington pretty much makes it clear that enlistments are going to be for three years. No more three to six month enlistments. Yes, we may lose a few battles, but we've also got to keep these enlistments um, intact um, so that we don't, so that to prevent desertions from getting out of control, to prevent um, people from just getting out of line. So it's one thing to have a state militia go maintain defenses along the frontier territories, but do you think there's going to be a lot of long-term success with that? If you ask me, I would say very doubtful. But some of you might have a different opinion, and if you do, then it's not my place to tell you differently. 
the post-revolutionary war era saw big spikes in land speculation acquisitions where titles to land weren't yet formally recognized by the new United States government. Matter of fact, many of these uh, land speculation acquisitions that were taking place involved some of our signers uh, to the U.S. Constitution whom uh, were very big into um, land purchases. They may have had the money to um, buy the land, but once they got ownership or so-called ownership of the land, over time, the value of the land would depreciate because the money itself had no value. Many of these uh, men bought the land on money that simply had no value because, after all, you know, paper money doesn't have the same value as hard currency, but when you don't have a government that's officially up and running, how are you going to be able to reap the, reap the rewards? So for many of these men, um, investing in um, land itself or getting involved in land acquisitions, it was like the equivalent of a modern-day Ponzi scheme. In other words, they were investing all their money, but didn't get much in return uh, to show for. So, how does the new Congress, I still kind of refer to it even in 1787 as a Confederation Congress, but by the time the Constitution is ratified, we actually start becoming a Congress. But how does Congress go about getting the upper hand on states' claims to Western lands? There has to be something to uh, curtail this um, shady practice because it's like I said earlier, men are investing money left and right. They are engaging in their own version of a Ponzi scheme, but they're not really getting a whole lot back in return because we don't have a government yet that can provide them with good money back uh, returns on their deals. So what can Congress do to curtail the um, claims to Western lands? Well, Congress in 1787 passes the Northwest Ordinance, which leads to the creation of the Northwest Territory. What does this ordinance do, folks? The ordinance itself focused on territory south of the Great Lakes. Okay, when I think of territory south of the Great Lakes, um, that could also mean Ohio. I mean, yes, Lake Erie is on... Uh, goes into Ohio, but there are plenty of places in Ohio that are not surrounded by uh, Lake Erie. The same for Indiana. You know, when I think of like Indianapolis, Indiana, which is in central Indiana, that's not uh, surrounded by uh, Lake Michigan. Um, the cities that I know of in Indiana that would be that would be right on the waters of Lake Michigan are Gary, Indiana. So let's just keep in mind that the Northwest Territory being what we now know as Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Illinois, and Wisconsin, south of the Great Lakes, we are still referring to those five states because those five states have enough land, or that is places surrounded by land, that are not impacted by water, meaning Great Lakes. How about the territory north and west of the Ohio River? That's another part of the, uh, another focal part, or focal point rather, to the Northwest Ordinance. 
How about establishing guidelines for how a territory would go about getting admitted into the Union, a.k.a. United States? So that's what the Northwest Ordinance um, was all about, folks. It was a, it's a measure that actually had a criteria for what was to be defined as a state, a process for how a state, for how a territory could go about getting admitted into um, the Union, um, geographical boundaries, territory south of the Great Lakes, but territory north and west of the Ohio River. So, how many people are living in the Northwest Territory, folks? I'm going to give you a ballpark number. The number is between 40 and 50,000. Do some of you think it's 45,000? Or do some of you think it's 50,000? Or do some of you, or some of you aren't sure exactly the, the, the exact ballpark number between the 40 and 50,000 uh, number range? The answer is 49,000. That's the total number of people living in the Northwest Territory at the time the Northwest Ordinance got enacted. But here's another uh, bonus question for you all. How many of the 49,000 people living in the Northwest Territory were American Indians? Was it um, 40,000? 42,000? or 45,000? The answer is choice C. 45,000 people were American Indians. So that means, folks, that 45 out of 49,000 people in the Northwest Territory were um, American Indians. So for the 4,000 uh, Americans who, made, who are living in the Northwest Territory, they are at a real disadvantage. They're the minority. And the 45,000 um, Indians living in this territory, they've got a tremendous amount of advantages. Most notably, their biggest trading part partner is the British. They're more than likely going to go to the British to trade versus the Americans. Would Congress, at the urging of President George Washington's request, pass any laws intended to help enforce treaties between the U.S. government and the Indian tribes? Uh, the answer is yes. One year after George Washington became president in 1790, Congress passed, or I should say enacted, the Trade and Intercourse Act. This act would be um, amended again in 1793 and in 1796, a year before George Washington uh, left office. So why is this um, Trade and Intercourse Act important? Well, for starters, the act prohibited anyone to conduct trade practices with Indian tribes who weren't licensed to do so. So in other words, if you don't have a license and you're trying to um, conduct uh, trade relations with the Indians or conduct an, an agreement you have no business being out on the frontier. You have no business even dealing with Indians, not just for your own safety, but you just don't have any business in general because you are putting not only yourself in danger, you could be putting people in the government in danger as well. You basically could be jeopardizing your nation's uh, security, a.k.a. national security. 
Secondly, uh, this act defined what was and wasn't legal in regards to land acquisitions involving Indian tribes. In other words, uh, when it, with regards to what's legal and what isn't, that's something that the government itself has to decide. If the government decides that something isn't legal, they will uh, rule it as null and void. Lastly, um, this act um, dealt uh, pretty um, harsh when it came to uh, crimes. Crimes like murder to theft against Indians on their lands was considered punishable. Well, punishable probably meant that you could have uh, been, uh, that you maybe you could have been branded. In other words, that you could have had a mark on your thumb that had the letter T, meaning theft, meaning that you stole from um, an Indian tribe's village, or M for murder. If you had killed um, someone uh, from within an Indian tribe, or perhaps uh, punishment by death, depending on the uh, severity of the crime. Of course, when I think of uh, brandings and all that, you know, when somebody got branded in colonial times, that usually was meant as a warning about what you had done and that people would know for the rest of your life what you had uh, committed in terms of theft or murder. But of course, if you committed a second crime <laughs> that was of the same uh, nature, as the first uh, major offense, whether it was for theft or murder, uh, you, you were hung. Uh, no buts or no ifs. That, that was pretty much it. You had pretty much used up your lifelines. The Trade and Intercourse Act helped uh, reduce current issues amongst land speculators to reducing tension along the Ohio frontier. So, to, to put it in a nutshell, this act didn't solve all the problems but it did help modify the current existing uh, issues faced, um, or rather, that were, um, that involved uh, Indian nations and, um, and Americans uh, coming westward along, uh, most notably, into the Ohio frontier. Although laws on the book required all persons to be licensed when engaging in trade am amongst the Indian nations, The ironic thing was that enforcing the laws was very, very difficult. How so? Well, along the uh, frontier, most notably the Ohio frontier and um, west of the Ohio frontier, the further west you went into the Northwest Territory, there weren't any American um, agents, or what we might think of as customs agents, at these uh, trading posts who pretty much said, hey, look, uh, you are authorized to trade with the Indians, but as for you, you aren't authorized. We don't have any, we don't have people at these posts. So, who can, um, who can practice um, trading with the Indians freely without licensure from the United States government? The British, folks. The British traders are the ones that can practice left and right without getting caught without having a license. Is it, uh, is that fair? No. But the problem for us is that we don't have the, the manpower to send agents all the way out into these no-man lands to go about enforcing the uh, laws that we've come up with already to say, hey, look, you, you know, you, you people being British traders can uh, trade with the Indians, but we have to have licensure. 
for you guys. Uh, although, uh, before I uh, just say this here, do any of you all know who John Jay is? I mentioned him um, from the last uh, series we did, Signing Their Rights Away, about the fame and misfortunes of the men who signed the United States Constitution. John Jay didn't sign the United States Constitution, but he had a big uh, role uh, with the uh, Federalist Papers, which were... Um, a collection of about 85 essays um, that were geared towards um, undecided um, voters in New York, most notably undecided uh, delegates who had attended um, the convention in New York, that is, uh, people from the, their uh, state of New York. But it wasn't just confined to the people from New York, uh, or from New York, it was uh, also um, included to um, encourage those from other states to uh, read these articles and help get a better understanding for what the new and with the new gov the new government itself would uh, entail that would explain why it was better than the uh, current system of government that was fledgling aka articles of confederation so john jay um, played a big role with these um, papers and he is a native of New York. As a matter of fact, there is a town uh, just north of Lake Placid named uh, Jay, New York, in his honor. John Jay went on to become um, Secretary of State. As a matter of fact, he replaced uh, George Washington's first Secretary of State, uh, Thomas Jefferson. So John Jay uh, goes about conducting a treaty with England in uh, 1794. It was called the Jay Treaty. This treaty uh, basically um, helped promote um, some good things, although uh, we weren't able to achieve everything we wanted to achieve in the treaty. I will um, ask you all this question. What advantages and disadvantages did this treaty have? Well, uh, for the advantage part of it, there are two things. Number one, the Jay Treaty allowed for better trade access to and from the United States and Canada. And by doing so, uh, the treaty allowed um, for Americans, British traders, and American Indians to um, freely trade with one another with as fewer restrictions as possible, with the exception of needing, uh, with there needing to be licensure. So it's fair to say that maybe that piece of the Jay Treaty is like the equivalent of a modern-day NAFTA agreement, North American Free Trade Agreement, that, that involves um, the United States, uh, Mexico, and Canada. Another advantage that the uh, Jay Treaty offered was that um, England agreed to abandon its five pre-revolutionary um, war forts around the Northwest Territory by 1796. The disadvantage to this Jay Treaty was that it left such places as La Baye and Prairie du Chien unaffected. Well, is that a, on one hand, yes, it's good to know that La Baye and Prairie du Chien might be left unaffected, but the thing is, is that 
um, normal activities like commerce between the British traders and Indians resumed without any U.S. governmental authority. Okay, if we don't have any governmental authority, what does that mean, folks? It means that we don't have any authorization at this time to control to control whom, in fact, has land access west of Mackinac Island. Mackinac Island is um, not far from the Straits of Mackinac. As a matter of fact, uh, as I mentioned from a previous podcast, um, there's the Mackinac Bridge that would be built in uh, the 20th century. I believe, yes, somewhere sometime in the 20th century that actually connected the mainland of Michigan, that is the northernmost part of uh, the state of Michigan's mainland, to the Upper Peninsula, in large part because of the Mackinac Bridge. But the Mackinac Island was really, had not been uh, fully claimed by the United States, so uh, British leaders pretty much seized on an opportunity at the right time by stating that, hey, nobody has claimed this area um, west of us being Mackinac Island, so we will claim it as um, our territory and a uh, post for uh, trading um, purposes. Were many traders living at Labaye and Prairie du Chen come the start of the 19th century? Yes. However, some traders resided full-time, whereas others maintained seasonal posts or rather stores, um, to living at Michilimackinac come summertime. So, Labaye and Prairie du Chen, for some, is really a place that's um, a lot of coming and going, but for others, it is full-time, regardless of the season. You know, trading connections um, are really taking off during this time, not just so much along the upper Mississippi, but other trading connections from Lake Michigan to the Missouri River, as well as from Des Moines River northward into the Chippewa and Dakota Territory. Um, it's not all confined to one area, folks, but the fact that we've got trading connections in those other areas, that speaks high volumes as well. On the other hand, it might, be, it might, also, deter, it might also come down to what side you're on. If you're on the side of the British, that is huge. You're you're reaping in the rewards. If you're on the American side, it's not so good. Why is why isn't it so good for the Americans? Due to their inability in enforcing laws with regards to a licensure regarding licensure in the fur trade, the US lost roughly $26,000 yearly in the upper Mississippi because they were unable to enforce the laws on their end. $26,000 doesn't seem like a lot, but in the early days of our republic, to be losing that kind of money yearly is a big deal. Think about what $26,000 could have done, uh, even for that day and time for the younger public. That could have been money used to pay off um, debts that were still um, outstanding from the American Revolutionary War, um, other uh, debts for uh, domestic-related matters. So, and, and then the $26,000 could be used for revenue as well um, to put back into our um, treasury um, 
or what call money back into our coffers. You know, that is money that could be used to say, like we know in today's time, is like a rainy day fun type um, thing. France and Britain, it's interesting, France and Britain always focused on trading with the Indians for furs and pelts. Did the United States do that too? Sure, but the United States as a nation wanted more than just trade. If you want more than just trade, what else is it that you want? You want land. Land, uh, and, and by acquiring more land, where are you going to go, folks? Are you going to go east or are you going to go west? You're going to go west. The United States as a nation is seeking lands where tribes had lived and hunted for multiple generations. And by 1800, Thomas Jefferson becomes president. And he becomes president of a new party that's uh, coming in office that is very big on westward expansion. George Washington was too, but as the times change, so do the policies. So, do, so does the outlook. Thomas Jefferson, his policies geared towards acquiring land to having greater control over the fur trade, where the U.S. government would have more leverage over Indian tribes in the Northwest Territory. So in other words, Thomas Jefferson wants us to have more control over what the Indians can and can't do in the Northwest Territory. Prior to Jefferson becoming president, there weren't as many, maybe there weren't as many restrictions. After all, George Washington didn't want to go to war with the Indians. There were some in his administration who thought maybe that would be okay to do, but Washington didn't want to. And he was probably very smart for his time not to do it, because after all, he had just fought a war to keep uh, kings out of our country. But secondly, he doesn't, if he risks going to war again, and this time it's with Indians, who does he have more to fear than the Indians themselves? The British, the fact that the Indians are going to be, um, turning to the British as their allies. I mean, yes, he dealt with that in the American Revolutionary War, but now that, you know, the Northwest Territory, there's about 45,000 Indians out of 49,000 people there. Think of all the Indians that could come if there were another war in the post, after the Revolutionary War ended. Think if there had been another war, just how many Indian nations along the Northwest Territory could uh, conspire by teaming up with the British and pretty much um, annihilating America. So Washington was smart in not um, risking an all-out war, but instead pursuing um, trading policies, pursuing trade with the Indian nations along the Northwest Territory, but also establishing um, legislation that had... Um, a fundamental uh, purpose for how to go about establishing treaties with Indian nations, the do's and don'ts of how you are to and not to be conduct conducting business with Indians along the frontier, um, what would happen if in the event you committed a crime against an Indian or, um, or uh, Indians um, along their uh, territory. So after all, there have to be rules, folks. 
you know, people just can't migrate westward at their own leisure. You know, we're not putting up a for sale sign on our home and saying, oh, we've just sold our home, now we're going to be moving. That's not the way it worked. Uh, what section of the Northwest Territory uh, became an official act of Congress beginning July 4th, 1800? Was it the uh, Illinois Territory? Uh, was it um, Wisconsin Territory or Indiana Territory? The Indiana Territory. This comprised a large bulk of the Northwest Territory, with the exception to Ohio. The Indiana Territory was would get divided into three counties, being Knox, Randolph, and St. Clair. Matter of fact, there still is a Randolph County in Indiana, and believe it or not, folks, it's named after Peyton Randolph of Virginia. I had no idea about that. But, you know, we do have to remember, folks, that um, even in colonial days, Virginia, being the largest of the 13 states, Virginia went as far west as present-day Indiana. And for some of our prominent leaders, they did have land holdings in uh, the westernmost areas along the frontier that were still... Um, recognizable until the Proclamation Act of 1763, which uh, pretty much um, voided their uh, land holdings, and even George Washington himself was impacted by that as he had held land in uh, present-day Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, as well as along the Ohio frontier. So yes, these three counties are Knox, Randolph, and St. Clair. Um, 1802 marked the first form of United States authority in Prairie du Chien, where the governor to the new Indiana Territory would be given powers in making political appointments. And did a Virginian become governor to the Indiana Territory? Yes. And which Virginian became governor to the Indiana Territory? Was it James Monroe? Was it James Madison? Was it William Henry Harrison? Or was it um, Thomas Jefferson? The answer is choice C, William Henry Harrison. Uh, one of Harrison's duties pertained to appointing government officials per the above counties of Knox, Randolph, and St. Clair, such as uh, justices to a regional militia whom would go about enforcing to interpreting all laws per county. And did Governor Harrison have any prior knowledge about Prairie du Chien? No, he didn't, but the good news is that four out of the five men whom Governor Harrison appointed had trading connections in St. Louis. Now, of course, Missouri's not a state at this time, folks, but St. Louis, St. Louis, Missouri, that's often been referred to, well, the Golden Arch, there was no Golden Arch Monument back then, but some people refer to it as the gateway to the West. So it might be fair to say that even St. Louis at the start of the 19th, at the 19th century, or what we now know as uh, the Missouri Territory, could have been considered the gateway to the West at that point. But uh, as for Prairie du Chien, Prairie du Chien, folks, becomes part of, of St. Clair County. And I'll just name you the men that Harrison appointed. Uh, John Campbell and Robert Dixon became uh, peace justices for St. Clair County. Henry Fisher uh, 
would be the Prairie du Chen militia captain, uh, Basil Giard, uh, a lieutenant, and Michel Laboff, an ensign. All five of these men resided at Prairie du Chen, considering that each one of them was involved in the fur trade, and they worked directly with various British trading companies out of Montreal, Canada. Well, it's, I think William Henry Harrison did the right thing by uh, appointing men whom, um, okay, they may not have known about Prairie du Chen before, but they have enough uh, westward experience to know what they're going to be um, getting into. And as long as Harrison knows what these men have uh, dealt with before, that does give him um, a sigh of relief in knowing that he's uh, done his homework uh, well. Now, um, you know, as we all know, Thomas Jefferson becomes the first um, new, newly elected president at the start of the 19th century. He um, gets sworn in in uh, March of 1801. But uh, would there be any new states admitted into the Union, or rather I should say the United States, shortly after Jefferson becomes president in 1801? Yes. Which state became the 17th state admitted into the Union? Was it a state from the Northwest Territory, or was it um, a state um, south of uh, Georgia or west of Georgia? It would be a state from the Northwest Territory. Was it Ohio, Indiana, or Illinois? The answer is Ohio. As the 18th century closed, or came to an end, I should say, did America's republic still face challenges? That's a no-brainer right there. The answer is yes. It's not a bad thing, but let's think about it. We're, you know, we're pretty much, as the 18th century is coming to an end, we're just 10 years old in terms of our republic, um, in terms of our republic functioning as a government, but the challenges are still monumental. While John Jay's treaty expanded movement of free trade practices amongst the British, the Americans, and the American Indians between Canada and the United States, the biggest hurdle, in my opinion, as, we're, as we go now into the 19th century, is that the British remain present in the northern confines of the Northwest Territory to where they, being the traders, control the U.S. government posts. And why is that, folks? Because we don't have our own people in these posts, not only to man the posts, but to pretty much exercise our authority by saying, hey, foreigners like the British are free to, are, are, are free to trade, but they do not have the right to control our posts. I would still say we have a long ways to go. But how are we going to get there? In other words... In order for the United States to establish a solid presence along the upper Mississippi, there has to be something major with regards to acquisitions which pertain to western lands. In other words, we've got to take another big giant step. You know, <laughs> we're not astronauts here. But it's like that old saying, when the astronauts would go to the moon, they would say one giant step for mankind, uh, one 
you know, one big step and then one giant step for mankind. This is what we're dealing with right now. We're in the process of moving on up, but it's coming in different intervals. So when I'm on the air again next with all of you, I'm gonna, um, we're going to discuss about this um, next big phase in terms of acquisition. And um, if I tell you too much now, there may not be a need to talk about it. But I do know is that it involves an explorer. But I will admit that it's not Christopher Columbus. He's, he's been long gone by this point. It's not um, Ferdinand Magellan. It's not um, Vasco da Gama or Hernando Cortez. It's not any of those explorers, I can promise you that. Not, not that those men are, aren't worth learning about. They are, but, but, we're, but it's about a man that uh, most of you probably don't know about. But I look forward to sharing with you all about this person when I'm on the air again next. So thank you for your time as always, and I look forward to being back on the air again soon with all of you. And hey, just remember this. Life's work doesn't always revolve around one um, aspect of your life. Finding out what your life's work is all about is a work of art unto itself. And that's what Steelers coach Chuck Knoll emphasized with his players, that, hey, get out there after your football career is over and make sure you, you know, not, maybe if you don't know it right away, but find out exactly where your life's work is going to be because it's not going to always be confined to the football field. It's not going to be confined to, uh, to a sport. It's got to be more than just sports itself. It's got to be more than just one thing. Thank you again, as always, and uh, thank you again for uh, being such ardent listeners and continue to spread the word to those who would like to um, listen to podcasts because by coming to Anchor, it's free, the opportunities are limitless, and the results go beyond the sky's ceiling. Thank you again, and uh, I look forward to being on the air again soon, and have a great uh, Friday wherever you all live in the world. Take care and God bless.